Good morning. How are we doing today? Excellent. I love that. No, I'm not. It's a little boomy. Can we adjust the boom? Yeah, it's great. I really enjoy getting the opportunity to um, share my thoughts with you all. And the one thing I always find the hardest is the opening illustration. Some day, weeks it's easy, other weeks it's not. This is one of those weeks where it's not. Um, so I'm just going to dive right in and kind of talk, uh, uh, introduce the topic of today. Um, so today I want to talk to you about our pride and the God of AI or artificial intelligence. And as we move through this, we're going to go through and we're going to see um, pride throughout Scripture, pride of our generation, how AI, artificial intelligence, is being used within this world, and what's to come. This is kind of the series of things that we're going to talk through. And as we talk through this, I want you to open your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, specifically. And as you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of an introduction to Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, it was uh, earlier in this year that I had read through the book of Jeremiah, and this, this passage really um, stuck out to me for today. And what happens in this, in this chapter here is you have 7 and 8, part of chapter 8, you have Jeremiah giving what's commonly known as Jeremiah's temple sermon, because he's told to teach this in the temple for the nation of Judah. And it reflects on a time before the judgment and destruction of Judah, which occurred around 586 B.C. during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And this message that Jeremiah preaches is one that highlights the failure of his people's ability to keep God's commands and outlines what happens as a result of that. And, and I know you're thinking, Larry, how does this play with... Um, pride and artificial intelligence, I promise you we'll get there. But Jeremiah is the starting point. So Jeremiah chapter 7, I'm going to start reading verses 1 through 7. And if you don't have your Bible, lucky you, I put it up on the screen for you. Um, Jeremiah chapter 7, I'm reading from the ESV, says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the, of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord, thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptions. Temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute judge justice with one another, other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. The focus that Jeremiah puts here is on this. We see it twice. Amend your ways and your deeds, right? And the result of them amending their ways and their deeds is that the Lord will let them dwell in this place forever. He won't let them leave, right? Calamity will not fall upon them. However, the warning that he gives is this, do not trust in these deceptive words, the temple, this is the temple of the Lord. 
I like how the NET puts this verse. The NET writes it like this, stop putting your confidence in the false belief that says we are safe, the temple of the Lord is here. Right? Judah was under this false impression that because they had Jerusalem, God's holy city, and the temple of the Lord, they would be safe. They're not going to be attacked by their enemies. They're not going to go into captivity like Israel did. Right? We're safe. However, we're going to continue on in verses 8-15. through 15. We're going to see how the Lord will call them to look at the destruction of a city that once had the temple of the Lord. So let's read on. Um, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8-15 through 15 says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered! Only go on, and only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you presently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight and cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. Right? You hear here the Lord looking on the actions of Israel. They steal, commit murder, adultery, swear falsely, chase after Baal and false gods. And yet, they still try to put their trust and their faith in the fact that the house of the Lord is there. Right? They're going to go on doing these things, but trust that the house of the Lord is here, and because the house of the Lord is here, it doesn't matter what we do. We can do what we want and still not receive judgment. That's their thinking. right? They put their safety in that false lie. And here's where we see the warning. right? Um, the Lord tells them to go to my place that was in Shiloh. Flip to Psalms. Keep your finger in, in Jeremiah, but flip over to Psalms chapter 78. I want you to look at these two verses. Psalm 78, verses 60 and 61 says this, He forsook his dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity. His glory to the hand of the foe. This is what the Lord is telling the people of Judah to look at. Look at what I did to Shiloh. The people there trusted that the house of the Lord is here, so we will be safe. We can go do what we want, as the people in Jeremiah's day were doing, what they wanted. But the Lord's like, no, look to Shiloh. What happened there? I gave Shiloh to captivity. I gave Shiloh to the hand of the foe. And so will be the same with you. 
That's why he ends the warning here. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust as I did to Shiloh. In this warning, he's telling the people to contemplate why Israel was destroyed at Shiloh. Think about it and why my PowerPoint decided to die. Technology. I love it. There we go. He's telling them, contemplate what happened to Shiloh and why Israel was destroyed there. And the answer is this. Israel was destroyed at Shiloh because they stopped serving Yahweh and started serving themselves and other gods. That is why. They didn't humble themselves before the Lord. They exalted themselves. They exalted the teachers that tickled their ears. That's the problem. And we see the underlying issue is an issue of pride. The people of Judah, the people of Israel at Shiloh, they had pride in the fact that the temple of the Lord was there. And that's why they thought that they would not be consumed by their adversaries. But we see over and over how the Lord knocks that idea out. That's not how you're supposed to think. They thought that the one thing that would protect them, no matter how they lived their lives, um, was the temple. And this was the falsity. right? They believed on the false prophets that tickled their ears. told you to keep your fingers in Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah 14, verses 13 through 16, talks about this. This is one of the many. We're going to look at two. This is the first one. He says, Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. He said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them nor did I command them to speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, who say, sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine these prophets shall be consumed, and the people whom they prophesy shall be cast out into the streets of Jerusalem. Victims famine and sword with to bury them them their wives their sons and their daughters for i will pour evil upon them turn a few pages over to jeremiah 29 another instance where the lord rebukes these false prophets jeremiah 29 verses 8 and 9 says for thus says the lord of hosts the god of israel do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesying. There's the Lord. The people of Israel listened to these false prophets. You read that as you go through the book of Jeremiah, how Jehoiakim listens to these false prophets. And because of that, they fall prey to destruction. Right? They continued to live in pride, thinking that, again, because the house of the Lord is there, they will be saved. But, as we can read through the biblical account, and even through secular history, they were judged accordingly by war and famine, as the Lord, the true prophet Jeremiah, had spoken of. 
A remnant of people were taken into captivity and many were killed. But the pride is not something that is new. It wasn't new to Jeremiah's day. It's not new today. We often um, typically like to have our ego stroked, right? We like to have people around us. We look for books and podcasts and speakers of people that will confirm what we want to do instead of rebuke maybe some of the decisions we make. Because it's difficult to hear the condemning stuff, right? We like to hear the, oh, you're doing a good job. You made the right decision there when really it could have been a bad one. We don't like to reevaluate our lives. And the same went for the people in Jeremiah's day. They had myriads of prophets that said, no, everything will be fine. And one that said, no, turn away. Amend your ways. And this is something that goes back to the earliest days of, hum- of mankind's history. Right? We see this all the way back to the first instance of secular humanism that is documented in the Bible. Now that's a big word, secular humanism. So I kind of want to write it down. Because a lot of people might, might not be aware of it. And this is kind of what plays into everything we're going to talk, to, talk about. Right? So in secular humanism, this is an idea and belief that humans can develop morally good values, reason, ethics, and justice without reference to religious beliefs. That only using the world around us, we can be good. Right? I don't want to murder my neighbor. Murder is bad because if I live in the fear of him killing me and he lives in the fear of me killing him, well then, that's a bad thing. So murder is bad. Right? That's the reasoning behind it. There's no moral law. It's just based on the world around you. And we see this come to play, the very first instance of this, at the Tower of Babel. So turn over to Genesis chapter 11. I want to look there. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, which is where we see this first step onto the scene. It says this, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitmen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top up to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole earth. Right? With the great tower of Babel. Mankind's greatest achievement after the flood. Everyone in one language doing one thing, making this tower that reaches up to the heavens. A monument by and for the people themselves. And I like what Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says. He has a commentary over the book of Genesis, and he says this in his commentary about this section. Here is the birth of humanism. It is human-centered, with all the wrong motivation, motivated from pride. The motivation was, lest we be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. And this is an act of rebellion against God, in violation of the Noahic covenant of Genesis. 1 and 7. commanded them to scatter through the world. According to the rabbinic interpretation of this verse, they paraphrase the people saying, it does not rest with God to choose the celestial sphere for himself. And for us, 
us then make war against him. Right? The whole earth, the people, making war against God because he chose the celestial sphere for himself. While artificial intelligence, this is where this kind of plays in, it's an exciting computing tool, right? It's something that um, I have to learn and study in my profession, right? I'm a technologist by trade, cloud technology. Artificial intelligence is consuming cloud technology. And I have to learn and know how to use it and implement it ethically and well. But one reoccurring conversation that keeps coming up in all the things that I'm learning, listening, reading, is how we deal with a man-made intelligence. Something that is now a new entity. How do we handle this entity ethically and philosophically in today's world? Right? Because man has essentially become the creator of a new life. Right? These people think that they have created life because... You have a computer now that can think on its own. It can learn on its own. We have become the god of an electronic device. We have taught it to think like we think, to respond like we respond, to create like we create. Write blogs, write videos, pictures. Right? 90% of the pictures today are artificial intelligence. I put in a prompt, it spit out a picture. Right? These are things that we would normally do. We would normally create up. Right? In the image of us, we have created artificial intelligence. However, the big brains, I'm stealing AJ's turn, the big brains of technology, um, when they're having these ethical and philosophical discussions, they're coming at it from the secular humanist perspective that mankind is generally good in and of himself. Mankind is generally okay Right? And we can make decisions that are good based on our own surroundings. However, that's not the viewpoint that the Bible takes. The viewpoint that the Bible takes, the true viewpoint, is that man's good is man's inner nature is not to do good, but to do evil continually. There's two examples I want to look at. Keep in Genesis, flip over to Genesis chapter six. Genesis six, verse five says the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. That is the thoughts of mankind. Turn to Isaiah 64, because that was the pre-flood example. We could make an argument, oh, that was pre-flood, right? God judged them for that. Flooded the earth. Turn to Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, looking at verse 6, says, We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Where the pre-flood world was always evil continually, the post-flood world, we see that even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. However, in mankind's attempt to avoid fading like a leaf, right? Because as Isaiah says, we all fade like a leaf. Mankind is trying to attempt to not fade like a leaf. We strive to create something that we can imprint ourselves on. 
the men of this world have created something that would enable them to put their likeness, their image, their voice, their thoughts into. And by some miraculous way, they think now that their minds can live forever in this artificial intelligence state while their body decays in the grave. They think that they will still live forever. Their consciousness will continue to go on. This advancement in technology reminds me of a comic. I like comics. I'll lighten it up a little bit. It reminds me of one comic book superhero story, Superman. You see, in the origins of Superman, you have this young alien boy who gets, um, lands in Earth, gets adopted by the Clark, or the Kent family, assumes the name Clark Kent, and he grows up, and around his teenage years, um, his father, Jonathan Kent, dies in an accident that Superman could have prevented. Superman then goes in this deep state of turmoil, and he, you know, finds this crystal from his spacecraft, and he tells his mom, I'm going on this journey to find what this crystal means. And so he travels through the Earth, and he ends up in the Arctic. And as he lands in the Arctic, he finds out that he can use this crystal to create something called the Fortress of Solitude. And this is where Superman goes, and there's this little pillar, kind of like the podium, and he can put his crystal in. And when he puts his crystal in, Ta-da! The artificial intelligence of his father appears. Right? His father has imprinted his likeness, his voice, his knowledge into this computer system. And now Clark Kent can interact with this artificial intelligence and the AI influences him to be the champion of the earth. Right? And that's, ah, ta-da! Now you have Superman. The champion of the world. However, the leaders in philosophy and tech, when they speak about AI, they speak about it like we are training a champion of our earth. That artificial intelligence will one day be the thing that can save us. Right? We can build it in a way to mimic our consciousness, our thoughts, our actions, right? our voices, our likeness. We can have images of us continue on again after our bodies have been in the grave. This is how the secular humanist thinks that he will live forever. He will imprint onto an artificial intelligence, and it will be his way forward. They forgot the power button. Every computer still has a power button. Can turn it off. I forgot about that. Now, oh, the picture didn't show. One of the guys leading um, the development of artificial intelligence is a guy by the name of Yuval Harari. Um, and if you're not familiar with Harari, he is one of the folks that's a part of the World Economic Forum. It's said that he is the second-hand man of Klaus Schwab, the leader of the World Economic Forum. And I recently listened to a podcast that had him on. I don't make it a point to listen to him because 99% of the time, I disagree with the guy. Used to be 100. He actually said one thing that I agreed with, so I mocked it down a little. But uh, in this podcast, um, they were discussing the um, technical and philosophical implications of artificial intelligence. And what he said really speaks to artificial intelligence and the pride of mankind. He says this. He says, the funny thing is, when you look to the future, more and more entities will come out of intelligent design 
not of some God above the clouds, but of our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, of our computing clouds. They will design more and more entities. And this is what is happening with AI. Right? That comment right there. More and more, oh, there's this picture. More and more entities coming out of intelligent design, but out of our intelligent design, out of the intelligent design of our clouds, the things that we have built and made. And the one thing that gives me turmoil in working with artificial intelligence is this thought that a project that I am working on could be seen as something that comes out of my intelligent design. Disgusting. But going back to what Dr. Fruchtenbaum said about the rabbinic interpretation of the Tower of Babel, right? think about this. He says this, it does not rest with God to choose the celestial sphere for himself and assign the earth for us. Let us make war against him. At the time of the Tower of Babel, they chose to make war against God by building this tower. While well, in listening to Harari and others about this AI movement, I've come to this conclusion. We're saying this. It does not rest with God to be the only creator of life. Let us then create life in our image and make war against him. We're saying the same thing as they did at Babel. Only instead of building a tower to the skies, we're building a tower that can fit in our pocket. Um, oh, I meant to say that. Instead of building a tower to the skies, i got pictures. We're building a tower that can go on our toaster and in our pocket. Look at that. I forgot about these pictures. Man. So, that's where we're at. That is the state of the world at which we are in today. Right? We're building towers that are compact, that can follow us anywhere. If it has an internet connection... You, you can use it. But I want to look at how these towers are being used in our world and what's to come of it. A couple of things we're going to talk about here. We're going to look at false teachers, one world government, and how artificial intelligence could be used in it, and the coming judgment. You see, tying this back to Jeremiah, when Jeremiah was giving his temple sermon in chapter 7, he was speaking prophetically to the people of Israel. Right? The events that he was warning about had not occurred. And the Lord was using Jeremiah to give the people a path out. Right? Amend your ways and you will live in this place. That is your path out. That is your way out. However, at the end of the temple sermon, the temple sermon in chapters 8 and 9, Jeremiah moves into a lament because the Lord knows the people will not amend their ways. And at the end, chapter 9, um, verses 23 through 26, he says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, and the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. In Jeremiah's day, the wise man boasted in the fact that he understands and knows the Lord. That he knows that the Lord is the one who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. And in order for the wise man to know this, the wise man must know that the Lord is the one who will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And the, the Lord calls Israel a nation that is, only, that is not circumcised in the heart. Right? They're physically circumcised, but in their hearts they're not. Right? It wasn't about the physical act of circumcision. It was about the spiritual act of obeying the Lord. The wise man, in order for the wise man to be wise, he understands why war, famine, judgment, death, and captivity will be required for Judah. Because they disobeyed the Lord's command. They did not amend their ways. They listened to the false prophets instead of the true prophet of the Lord. Being wise meant going back to the temple sermon and knowing what Jeremiah was speaking was true. But we have prophecies that are given to this generation. A number of them. As we look throughout Scripture, turn to Second Timothy chapter three, because as the Lord gave prophecies to Jeremiah of what was coming, He gives prophecies to us as well of what is to come, what we can expect, so that we can be ready when it knocks on the door. Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through five, reads. But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Did you know that there have been calls on artificial intelligence to create a new version of the Bible? Yuval Harari is one of the people that promotes this idea quite often. And he, he says it a number of times in his speech called AI and the Future of Humanity. And when he says that AI needs to create this new Bible... What he's saying in it is he says that in this new Bible, we will have a religion that is actually correct. Because he thinks that the true Bible is not. And you know, every time I hear this, when I, whenever I hear Harari or others say that AI needs to make a new Bible, I go out and I buy another one. So this has become an expensive habit. I know a lot of you have benefited. I have a stack of free Bibles in my library. You know, so if you need one, come grab it. I have a stack of Bibles hidden somewhere in my house in case I ever get raided. This is an expensive hobby, let me tell you. But did you also know that there is this thing on Twitch 
It's a stream, a live stream, 24 by 7. AI Jesus. He was given the Old Testament. And he's, it was trained to uh, give instructions and reinterpret the Old Testament. And it even has a surfer vibe to it. You listen to the man. Yeah, dude. This is cool stuff. This uh, Jeremiah thing. Oh, that was something pokey. You don't need right? It's really awful. Don't look it up. Promise. Just it's awful. Now, also, did you know that there's this St. Paul Church in Firth, Germany? They recently did a 40-minute sermon. The text of the sermon generated by AI. The avatars on the screen generated by AI. The voice repeating generated by AI. The entire thing. AI driven. And I'm sure as I'm speaking right now, there's a church out there with a pastor who is building a sermon, speaking it from artificial intelligence because it's easy. I can give AI a collection of my sermons and say, okay, now write something in my likeness that I would speak. I didn't do that today. I only did that with the pictures, I promise. But that is how artificial intelligence is, has implanted itself into the false teachers of today. It's here. It's out there. And it's easy. What about the prophecies of the one world government? For time's sake, I only want to um, flip to Daniel chapter 7. I won't read both, verses, both sections. But Daniel has two visions that talk about this coming one world government. And I want to look at Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. He outlines it very well here. He says, And thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of of the kingdoms under the whole earth shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Before we get to the point at the end there where the Lord comes and sets up this everlasting kingdom, there will be a centralized government consisting of ten kings. And eventually, this power will be given to one man, the Antichrist. He will reign and rule over this earth with power and fury like unlike anything that has been seen. I want you to think about what it takes to run a local government, let alone a worldwide government. Right? All the people to enforce laws, to make the laws, all the, the other, everything, to put it at scale is a monumental task, especially from a one-world government perspective. Now, what was interesting is that the leaders in AI are talking about this. There's one guy, another podcast I listened to, um, had, had a guy, Mo Gadot. I actually have his picture up first. Ha <laughs> there's Mo. Mo Gadot. And if you don't know Mo Gadot, that's fine. 
He used to be the chief business officer for Google, and he was one of the main leaders in their artificial intelligence development. And in this interview, Mogadot was talking about how we're in a dystopian era where artificial intelligence is starting to disrupt mankind, and, and not because of the technology itself, but because of mankind's greed and how we use it. And he says this in the interview. He says that within two to three years, there will be a concentration of power. Speaking of governmental power, we need to concentrate the governmental power because that's the only way we can make decisions fast-paced enough to match with the artificial intelligence development so that we can move away from this dystopia to a utopia. Right? We can move into a world where everyone is happy living co-sided with artificial intelligence. It's crazy. Again, when you think about what it takes to run a, world, a, a government, a one-world government at scale, there's pieces of artificial intelligence that need to come into play. Something, for example, like computer vision. This is where you give computers the ability to see the world, right? You have cameras connected with facial recognition, connected with a model, a trained model that says, hey, um, crossing the street here is jaywalking, but crossing the street here is not. So if you see someone cross the street at these points, go and arrest them, right? Because they broke the law. That is being used today in smart policing. You can look this up in Dallas, Texas. They used this to arrest a number of people that were protesting and broke the law. The cameras found the people that broke the law. The police went and arrested only those people. It's crazy. How about a social credit system? We commonly hear this being used in China. Okay? You combine AI with other parts of a person's life, you know, your biometrics, you're, you open closed doors, you say something on Twitter, Facebook, right? The AI then can iterate everything that you say and do, look at all your actions, track you, and then determine a credit score for you that gives you access to banking, loans, travel, education. China's the leader of this development, and it's coming. We see it. What about prophecies? Um, of the coming judgment. Turn to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter chapter three. Even though we can see these things coming in our day and age, we're given a prophecy in Second Peter that should give us some semblance of hope. Second Peter chapter three verses one through seven says, "This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere way." Your, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires, that they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment 
and destruction of the ungodly. By God's word, the heaven and the earth were created. By God's word, the inhabitants of the earth were judged and destroyed with water. And by God's word, a future judgment and destruction by fire will come. That future judgment, speaking of the second coming of the Messiah, right? you read Revelation 19 and 20, speaks of how he will come. Isaiah 66, 15-16 says, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like a whirlwind, to render his anger and fury, and rebuke, his, and rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. The judgment of the Lord has already been decided. It is coming. No matter what the people of this world try to do, they cannot offset what the Lord has set in stone. And while a lot of this sounds crazy and probably makes me sound like tinfoil hat guy, um, it's not, right? We can see it playing out. Again, you look back to Jeremiah. And for the people in Jeremiah's day, for the people of Judah, being wise meant knowing the Lord and understanding why he acts the way he does. It meant seeing man's sin through God's eyes and not through man's eyes. It meant having an understanding that judgment was coming because of sin and a faithless generation. For us, it means knowing that the Lord will continue to act with steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Our God is an unchanging God. The more that we look into the development and direction of technology today, the more that I can see how these things will be used in biblical prophecy, especially when it comes to a one-world government, especially when it comes to false teachers and how they are using it, how mankind's brain has been implanted on this artificial intelligence, and now we're allowing it to think for us instead of thinking for ourselves. While this is a heavy topic. I want to leave us with something of encouragement um, rather than discouragement because this feels a little discouraging. For Jeremiah's day, right, knowing judgment was coming meant knowing that you had to repent. You had to turn away. It would have been a sobering experience to be wise and to know that I needed to turn from my sin. I needed to turn to the Lord. And as God preached that to Jeremiah. He preaches that to us. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge that Christ died for your sins on the cross, that he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again, conquering death and confirming his message that he is who he said he was. I've been reading this book called Fastened Like Nails. It's a bunch of mini-books going over some of the saints of old and the Bible verses that spoke to them, that spoke to them, that brought them to saving faith. And over the past couple of days, I've been contemplating the section on John Bunyan. And the verse that spoke to him was this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Here you have the, the combination of God's action, man's free will, 
and security. Eternal security. Right? God calls all of us to come to Him. And when we do come to Him, by faith, He will never cast out. When we see the judgment of God coming, we know that being wise knows that means that we know and understand why the Lord is sending that judgment. Because we live in a sinful and fallen world. Let us then respond by turning to Him and laying our hope in this promise that whoever comes to Him will never be cast out. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank You and praise You for You. We praise You for the fact that You give us the ability to know You, to know why You act the way You act, and to know how You will act. We thank You, God, that no matter what the men of this world will do, we can trust in You. We can put our faith in You. We can come to You and know that You will never cast us out. We thank You, God. We pray that You take us home safely and that we would continue to trust and lean in You. We pray these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.